Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. This week we're coming from a completely new location. Usually we come to you from Greater Manchester Ch- Ch- Chamber of Commerce. Well, this, this week we're coming from Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of the Year, absolutely. So, a, so congratulations, gents. Uh, a thank bit, you, of, thank um, you. a bit of a change and uh, a, a, a well won award. Thank you very much. Yeah, we've been after this for uh, for two or three years now, and finally we got it over the line in uh, in London last week. So, Alex was was down at the event. I was there. Yeah. Can you remember any of it? Uh, <laughs> no, not a lot of it. No. <laughs> well, it's good to know that you sent your best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was a good night. Good night, yeah. uh, and I hope the podcast was um, was mentioned during during the award. A few people came up to me and spoke to me about the podcast, and yeah, we're very very kind about it. So um, yeah, went down well. Excellent. Uh, well, as we have started with a media product, our podcast. Why don't we talk about the city of culture and why we can't bid for it anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the easy answer to that question is we can't bid for any more because we won't be a member of the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was that straightforward. It's not. Well, it's not. Alex, you want to have a kick off on this? Um, yeah, it's. So, I'm going to make sure I get every group here. So, to, to be eligible for City of Culture, mm-hmm. you have to be a member of the EU or a member of the EEA. Okay. Or you have to be. In the process of becoming a member of an the accession EU, state. an yep. accession okay. state, or you have to be in the process of becoming an accession state. I think that's it. I well, think that's the. Four uh, do groups. we not qualify on any of them? We, we, so we, we qualify on one at the moment, but we won't in 2023, <laughs> uh, uh, which is when all this bidding round is for. Well, 2023. Yeah, of course we would. No, and it does. It does seem obvious that this is somehow. It seems odd, rather, that this is somehow a news story. Um, yeah. Because when this broke, I forget it was last week or the week before now, it, it just went ballistic with with all of the politicians leaping on Twitter and saying that this is an absolute outrage. And actually, the the hard Brexiters as much as the Remainers <laughs> saying this is an absolute outrage. Even Vince Cable, I think, was on TV saying, you know, this is the EU being, you know, just being stubborn. Petty. And, yeah, and they knew that we were planning for this and these cities were in, in preparation. And, and you know, and it, I... It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, we, we knew about this a long time ago. Yep. And the Department for Culture, Media and also Sport um, <laughs> Good put, put, out a, put out a statement 
following the referendum, essentially saying that they understand that we've put ourselves in this position. They're not 100% on what's going to happen, but they would keep the cities who are meant to be doing the bids in, you know, in the loop as to whether those bids would, would be eligible or not. And no one's heard anything since then. And no, but of course the, you know, the European Commission is clarifying all this by pointing to a document from either 2014 or 2015, so some time ago, um, which clearly states, as Alex said, that, that membership, you know, your ability to, to um, put forward a bid for the European City of Culture is predicated on EU, EEA or accession um, status. And that was revised and updated in 2016, so if not before then around the referendum period, uh, confirming all of that. And actually one of the uh, one of the MPs who was uh, blazing away on Twitter after the announcement saying it's a disgrace is the minister in charge of handling that particular regulation which he must have seen as part of his job. So, it, you know, this for me goes, it goes to the heart of all the Brexit stuff issue. You've just got lots of people shouting very loudly about things of which they know nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's quite a common theme though, isn't it, with this Brexit stuff? It is. We're constantly, I mean, everything that we're going to be talking about today <laughs> is stuff that really we should have, we really knew about a long time ago yeah absolutely and you know analysts and you know i count us amongst those have been talking about this for for the best part of 18 months nearly two years now yeah um but it appears the people who are leading us through this process are still clueless yeah so <laughs> i mean the city of culture award is one of those things that makes me ro- makes me roll my eyes and i imagine that if you're a hard brexiteer like a nigel farage or someone like that this is exactly the sort of eu excess which you absolutely detest which is why it's so surprising that such a song and dance was made about the whole thing. I mean, well, this is exactly Nigel Farage was making a song and dance, saying this is just the EU being obstreperous, you know, how dare they cut mm. us out of this, this is all about cooperation. No, that's the whole point, we didn't want to... I mean, <laughs> I don't... Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know, people in Liverpool might be delighted with city culture. Me, personally, I'm quite happy not to waste the money. You know, yeah, I've been, we were chatting before, so actually, yeah. you know, there's, there, there's lots of good evidence that the, that the money is well spent and it leverages things like a good private sector investment, but you know, take your own view, that's cool, I don't have a problem with it on that, uh, on that kind of scale. Mm. But it, certainly, it, it goes to this kind of, this very strange dichotomy at the heart of all Brexit-related things, where a bit like, a bit like Alice in Wonderland or the Queen or wherever the, whichever the, person, the character in the, in the story was, you're capable of believing you know, X number of impossible things before breakfast and holding, <laughs> you know, um, is, it, is it George Orwell in 1984 who talks about the, the important skill is the ability to hold two divergent and opposite views simultaneously. Yeah. Um, it's right at the heart of all of this stuff. Oh, well, um, city culture will be missed. Um, Moving swiftly on, then. Actually, we'll, 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 we'll pick up on that, actually, because where, where the argument is now... Because the argument about th- this was never eligible is is a done deal, all the yeah. texts are there to prove it. The challenge, of course, is we've got a number of local authorities, I think about six cities in the UK, um, bid, uh, Leeds was definitely one, there was a three-way bid from Northern Ireland, and, and others chipped in. Of course, the thing is, yeah. they have been spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on bid documents on the advice of our civil service. Uh, so the big question there is uh, they will be looking for uh, for that money to be refunded from central government. Really? Uh, actually, before we do move on from city culture, do you think there's a chance that we're going to do our own version of this in order to, you know, um, locate well, the cities that are bid for it? Well, we already do. Hull is Hull is the UK city of culture um, for the next lots of. 20 days or so uh, before the end of the year so we already do so the UK runs its own system within the uh, within the European wide one so I would have thought we'll probably kind of scale this up yeah oh brilliant uh, okay so moving on from city of culture 
this is this is quite this is actually quite quite surprising. We have settled the bill. Now the reason I say it's surprising is well we've agreed to settle the bill. The reason it's surprising is because I was under the impression they wanted a formula for settling the bill rather than the bill. And I've not heard anything about a formula, I just hear more and more figures. So can you guys cut like colour in the blanks here and tell me exactly what's gone on? Um, well, I think we were saying before that there hasn't been an official announcement about this thus far. It just kind of hit all the newspapers at the same time. The fact that behind closed doors we had essentially agreed to pay, I think the numbers were something like £100 billion total, but over a number of years the net would be come out of something 40 to £50 billion, mm-hmm. which was the kind of number that we've been throwing around for months now. Um, and so you, you question on the whole, you know, they wanted the methodology thing. I'm, I'm not quite sure about, but one, one point I would clarify is that we've, we probably should stop calling this a bill. And I know I've been guilty of this for a long time because it's not really a divorce <laughs> bill. It's a promise to pay our, you know, pre-promised ongoing liabilities, essentially. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, as Alex said, this, this is a really important point, actually. And it, again, you see the you see this cause tensions in in the debate as each side gets their own views slightly confused because of what this is. It's outrageous yeah. that we have to pay this to leave. You don't. The point is, this is what you would be paying if you stayed. Yes. This so time, if yes. if you want to stay in the EU, then you will pay this money. Um, so this is about, uh, as Alex said, obligations the UK has already made. Um, it's about. You know, we've essentially we've signed up to the, the current EU budget cycle, which runs to 2020, which is beyond, of course, our current staying in the EU. Um, so programmes have been committed to. We've committed to projects whose scope will run beyond 2020. So we're saying we will meet the obligations we've already signed up to. And then there's all the really dull stuff about capital funds and loans into into EU assets. Simple things like the bu- the buildings, of course, uh, the the EU wine cellar, uh, of which of course a share is ours, uh, and then pensions for for our own MEPs and uh, our own civil servants out there. So that is essentially what we apparently have agreed to is that we will cover those costs. Now, we just made a quick joke then about the EU wine cellar. Ooh. Allegedly, the we- um, Westminster, Westminster has got an incredibly valuable wine cellar. It has indeed, absolutely. And there's been some disposals of it, actually. Yeah, um, I've, I've, um, I've heard that. They, didn't they do it to coincide with austerity? There's a little bit of a selling off of the uh, of the family, uh, not well, not silver, but the family uh, vineries. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a huge thing. And of course, actually, if you go to any big company, you know, there will be... There'll be some nice stuff laid down for uh, for the very special occasions. But government maintains a significant wine cellar. That's oh. incredible and uh, so unnecessary. Yeah, I, I, this highlighted a, a point for me, which I've been thinking about, um, which was that, as, as we said before, when this announcement was, ma- was made that we'd agreed to pay these financial liabilities, the number of remainers and, in particular, remain you know what I'd call hard remain MPs mm-hmm. that were on Twitter, uh, you know, saying you know this is ridiculous and the type of stance they were taking is look, we've agreed to pay £50 billion and we're going to end up in a worse position. So they were kind of ridiculing the idea that we'd agreed to do this, when in reality, if you're a Remainer, this should be seen as a, a very positive step because we all know that this is something that the EU's asked for in, in exchange for this trade deal or this ongoing relationship which, which we want. And it made, it made me think again about this whole position that some people on the Remain side take, which I find a bit bizarre and perhaps counterproductive, is that they still feel like there is an opportunity for them to force the decision between between essentially the deal and staying in. So the fact that people like Chukramuna yeah. would come out and ridicule the fact that we've agreed to pay the bill is because he's trying to ridicule 
everything which makes a kind of a good Brexit seem more likely? Because for him, the main decision is between staying. Yeah, so in essence, he wants the most extreme version of Brexit yeah. to create that contrast. So even, exactly. even though it's yeah. a move which would you know, help Brexit be more moderate, which is something you would have thought they'd be in favour of, lots of them still came out and were you know, quite being quite you know just the attitude that they took I just I just think yeah, it's it, a bit it, of a weird one it is odd there, there, there's this lack of sort of coherent thought about how you and I think this I mean this is at the, for me at the heart of the entire story going right back to the Bloomberg speech of Cameron in 2013 through to now and I think it will be the heart of the story for the next for the next 12 months is this this tension between you've got a lot of people who essentially who made their minds up on the EU when they were younger and they're their position on its benefits or disbenefits, whatever those balances are, have simply never moved. Mm. They've never, ever changed, despite the fact that, actually, the EU has evolved significantly, certainly since we joined. You know, it's a totally different beast. Uh, the economy in which we work, the way global trade operates, the way supply chains work, all of that means we're in a different world to that which we were certainly pre-Maastricht in 1992. And no one sort of is, is, is adapting the views they've held in light of that. And secondly, is this complete lack of pragmatism. So, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. as you said, there's this, you've got we have lots of hard remainers championing or shouting against things which actually are, will will aid their courts, and Brexiters shouting against things which will help them to get where they want to be, um, or Brexiters. You know, you've got this thing where hard Brexiters pushing an incredibly hard Brexit, which for me actually the, the political narrative, despite that may be your goal, actually the single thing which is most likely to stop the UK leaving the EU, if there is anything, is a clear sign that all this is completely falling to pieces. Yes. <laughs> yes, quite. You know, if there's something that will swing, you know, I don't know how, how swingable the public's view is, all the surveys since the referendum itself show actually the public has barely changed its mind. Um, but if there is something that's likely to swing public opinion strongly behind Remain, it's complete chaos. Uh, and so the more you push for the, you know, the ridiculous kind of style Brexit, the actually, the, the much likely you are to not leave at all. Mm-hmm. One of the weird things I'm finding about the whole Brexit process is it doesn't seem to be actually healing any wounds. I would have thought at some point it's decided, right, we're getting on with it, and then slowly, I mean, you're going to have your extremists on both sides, but slowly everyone kind of heals a bit more. <laughs> It feels to me as if attitudes are hardening. So people aren't changing their mind, but they are getting more entrenched with their original decision. I, I think that's particularly true of, of, of politicians, which I think is utterly bizarre. At this point, we have no major politician who has changed their position significantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them that's have been really good point. Some of them have been careless with maintaining a you know a consistent position on things with regards to whether we should stay in the customs union or something like that, but. There has been no major politician who, you know, has come out and said, "You know what? I voted out, but I now think we should. I, I now think we should do it, or the other way around." Mm. Um, and so, I think you're totally right. Yeah, everyone seems to be sticking to their guns, and I think it's purely for political reasons. I'm sure in the public, there's tons of people who have, you know, swung all over the place with how they, uh, how they think this should go. Yeah, and I think the challenge of all that is, again, it's because so much of kind of popular rhetoric, if I might say that, so individual people's views are have not evolved. Mm. As, as the EU and the UK's relationship within the EU and the EU's relationship with other countries um, has changed. So you've got people, you know, and I've spoken to so many over the past few months, um, and you say, well, you know, I want to leave, I think we should stay because of X, Y, Z. 
you know, and you know, these are my absolute cast iron reasons. Well, that's, you know, those are all those were laudable reasons to hold in you know, pre accession of AA. So, mm-hmm. But the things you state now are not true. Mm. Well, yeah. it doesn't matter. And it's like, well, okay. And so you can't, you can't actually debate this because my experience certainly is over half the population um, has, has its view on this and simply will not change it, regardless of literally how many facts you lay out in front of them. But, but I think to go back to your kind of this polarization view, I think for me, this is where history will judge the Theresa May, like, well, the Theresa May conference speech last October. And then firmed up in the in the Lancaster House speech in January, the twelve point plan, as being the fatal mistake. Yeah, because in t- this is a textbook management course lesson in how not to manage expectations. Because <laughs> yes. essentially, we, we we can all talk about what the Leave campaign said and what the Remain campaign said during the referendum. There is only one thing we know we have a mandate for, and I, I'm I'm putting you know inverted commas with my fingers around mandate here. Um, and that's for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. In, in terms of what that relationship looks like and which bits of it you keep or don't keep at its guard, we have no firm view. And then Theresa May in her conference speech, and we know this from kind of you know from from autobiographies of people close to close to it all. Uh, some very good books, thinking about Tim Shipman uh, over the past uh, twelve months, in a desperate attempt to kind of throw some red meat to the to the to the real hardcore Brexiters, particularly on the back benches. She suddenly pulled out of nowhere a set of red lines that the, the that, that this means the United Kingdom will leave the single market, it will leave the customs union, it will leave the common commercial policy, and we will maintain um, an open border, frictionless border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Now, as basically every single commentator after that speech said, those things are completely incompatible. Yeah. That, that as an outcome could never on earth be delivered. So the government was just setting itself up for failure. And instead, where you know, where a good leader would have said, "Okay, we hear your mandate to leave the European Union." Of course, it's not a very large majority. The country's split. There's a variety of ways going through. What we now need to do is try and unite the country behind a path which satisfies most people's views to the best of our ability. Where actually, she went to the minority of leaders. She went to the twenty percent slice and said, we will completely satisfy all of your goals. Mm. And you, you've locked yourself now into this, into this net from which, actually, the Prime Minister, the other major civil, the other, sorry, the other major um, secretaries of state involved, uh, the Conservative Party more widely, Parliament itself, because the other parties are not, uh, you know, are not clean in this. Mm. Um, we have Labour, we'll get on to the, obviously to the Northern Ireland issue in a minute, because that's the big news this week, but you know, Labour have been talking this week uh, and today, Jeremy Corbyn included, saying, you know, this, is out, this is ridiculous, we're going for a hard Brexit, we shouldn't be tied to the um, 29th of March as a firm deadline. It's like, well, you were the one who wanted Article 50 triggering the day after. You were the one who three-line whipped your party to trigger Article 50 without preparation. And all of this kind of rash, somehow we need to placate the people, be those members, voters, whatever, as we said at the time, is now coming back to bite every single one of them on the arse. Because they all said we would do things which were never going to be done. Yeah, and it feels to me as, not, as an opportunity missed by Theresa May, because you could have been that moderate, Absolutely. having been a because Remain she was supporter. The, yeah. well, she was actually cleaning the campaign. She didn't get involved. We know she was a Remainer privately. But she did not get involved in the campaign at all. So she could really have positioned herself as a unity figure, saying, and she said, you know, this is what we talked about in, you know, go back to our blogs of, 
early 2016, um, it's exactly that. Actually, you need to try and tread a gentle way. The first barrier, as always said, was how do you get yourself out of the EU whilst maintaining as close to the status quo as possible. First hurdle, get out. Then start to work out what you want to do. But instead, she, she plotted this, this kind of... I don't like the word hard right because you, you can't make left and right distinctions on this, but a hard Brexit line to placate the UKIP core vote... Um, making sure that you know any decision you took would have alienated 50% of the country. She managed to find the one which alienates 80. Yeah, so there is a disconnect as well, isn't there, between the language used and the subsequent negotiations. So if yesterday, because we're, we're recording the day after there was no agreement, yep. so it could be any day actually, um, if that agreement had been made, that agreement had pretty much been made on the terms given to the UK by the EU. So on the one hand, you've got this very hard rhetoric, but actually the result of it is going to be relatively soft, from what I can tell. I'm not sure it's yet going to be soft. I think time will tell as as the negotiations go on. But um, this is where I'm afraid I have a small amount of smugness in my voice. I'm sure Alex does. Essentially, the world is turning out precisely how we said it would over a year ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, That the EU will... That the EU came into the public domain on the day after the referendum, stated its objectives, stated its strategy, and has not budged on anything. And, um, and, and the way that we've played it is... Was guaranteed to result, were to bring yeah. that, that outcome. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so don't forget, you know, if, we, if we cast our minds back to, to the referendum period, the immediate post-referendum period, there were a number of things that were made perfectly clear to us, particularly by David Davis, uh, but by, by some of the other ones. Number one... The, the fight over sequencing was going to be the row of the summer. Yes. Uh, and that they would fight that every step of the way and win. Number two, that there would not be a divorce bill, and if there were, it would be in the order of 10 million quid, uh, 10, 10 billion uh, sterling overall. Um, we had an absolute cast iron guarantee that this is the easiest negotiation in the world, is the quote from David Davis. Uh-huh. Uh, we have the, the commentary that there will be no issues around Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that we will, and that we will also, we will have a free trade deal with the European Union in place by the time we leave. Every single one of those things we said at the time would not come to fruition, and so it, so it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, what does it tell you about the political situation that it's Theresa May who's standing behind the le- uh, behind various lecterns g- giving speeches and not David Davis? Oh God, I don't know how to tackle that. I, I, I would say this is <laughs> this is the Ollie syndrome. I'm trying to remember his surname. Our the chief civil servant. Oliver, I'm going to say I want to say Robbins, but that's yeah, I think it is Oliver Robbins. Is actually. it? No, no, he's our, anyway. Whoever he is, he got <laughs> he was the he was the um, lead civil servant in the Dexy department under David Davis, uh, and he was transferred into the cabinet office, which yeah. is kind of the central government central department. Uh, the Prime Minister's department in many ways, to lead the Brexit side. So Br- Brexit control has re- has been removed essentially practically from Dexu and now sits directly um, within within Cabinet Office and Prime Minister's role. So Theresa May is the one who's, uh, who's handling this. It thing. is Oliver Robbins. Oliver Robbins. We were, All right, yes. we were right. Well done. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, so it does make David Davis feel a little bit, token, uh, a little bit tokenistic at, at the moment. I think so, um, and it's interesting actually. As Jonathan said, we're recording this on uh, on the Tuesday, so yesterday the uh, we nearly had a deal on uh, the North Island border and possibly everything else, um, but that slipped through our fingers after a conversation with the DUP. 
Um, and we, there was a, the, the Prime Minister was supposed to give a huge statement to the House of Commons today. Um, the House had been asked to clear a substantial amount of time for a major Prime Ministerial statement. Funnily enough, that's not gone ahead. Uh, that was cancelled, and so uh, the opposition tabled an urgent question to call the Prime Minister to the House for an update on the negotiations. And she sent David Davis, and David Davis <laughs> gave that statement. Um, and so you see this bizarre sort of bit of interplay. It's uh, where does again the politics sits above all uh, above all in this? Wow. Um, so another thing I wanted to touch on was the sequencing, and more not so much the sequencing, but we have rounds of talks. And after every round of talks, we would sit here, wouldn't we, and say, "Well, they discussed this, but they haven't really done anything." Mm. And then all of a sudden, you got you get to yesterday, where it seems to be they've done everything. And so, when I did was, this happen? I was just going to ask about this. I mean, I should point out first of all that it was my birthday this weekend, and so oh, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't following any of this until this morning. Mm. But we were going through this process beforehand of kind of set rounds of talks, mm-hmm. and that appears to have gone out of the window. And I. I it seems to me like it's gone out the window because we basically agreed that we would just give them what they want. I mean, it, that's what seems to have happened to me. Because I, I don't think it was planned that they would be in a negotiating round. Or, or was it uh, b- no, the, before yesterday? There wasn't at this stage. It was no. just this dinner between May and Juncker. Yeah. Where, I th- well, well the, the plan obviously was that we would go in and we would agree to pay the financial liabilities. And we would agree, you know, what we said we were going to agree on Ireland, uh, and that it was all going to come out, and we were going to be able to progress into the next stage of talks at the EU Council summit on December fourteenth. Mm. That's obviously what the plan was. Uh, and so she went into this dinner, and then took a call from Arlene Foster, I think, yeah. and then went back, and it went on for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and you've just explained everything that's happened since then. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me it's 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 because we got very very close that the negotiating round thing has gone out the window. I think so, and there was—I think there was a bigger commitment too. So after after the last round, which actually were advertised in advance that this was going to be a round of talking about what the talks were going to be, yeah. rather than actually making substantial progress, the agreement was we are now going to push like hell to get this sorted in time for the December council. So um, I wonder if the push is from the UK side or the or is it? Both? I, I get the impression it's both um, that they they both want to move on. Uh, there is a desire, and and again, I think the Brexiters. The Brexiters play their tone around Michel Barnier and the, and the European Union badly here. There is a, there's a desire for the European Union to move this forward. They, 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 want, they want a decent deal. Now, mm. what they see as a decent deal is not what particularly you know, the hardcore four of, a, of our government sees as a decent deal, but they want this to move forward. They want something to happen. They do not want the UK to just fall out um, because that would be incredibly messy for all parties concerned. Um, so there was a, I think there was a concerted push to say we need to get this agreed in time for the December summit, which means we can move on to future relationship discussions in January, because actually the next summit after this is in March, uh, which means we wouldn't be moving on until April, and we know we need a deal ready to ratify in October. Um, now, there's no way, I'm, I mean, frankly, the chance of it happening in the time scale we've got is pretty small. Um, slice three or four months off that, it's, you know, it becomes ever more intractable. Um, so there's a desire to move things forward, um, but it looks like we essentially got there, but we got there by essentially caving into what we said we'd always end up caving into because you know there was a lovely article in the in the FT this week yesterday um, of someone pulling out the report from our European Commission European uh, Community chief negotiator on our original accession deal um, back in 1973 
Um, and it talks about, essentially, you could read the, the summary of that, and it's like today. That actually, the EU is massively intractable, it's massively bureaucratic, it tells you what you're going to get. The only negotiation really is how you get there and the process you go through. Um, and this has always been our challenge to, to kind of the Brexit aside, about you know, pace your, you know, project your what's realistic here. The EU will not cave in on what its single market means. It will not change what its customs union is for this. It has decided what you'll get. But it does seem, actually... I mean, we have spoken at length now about the EU wanting to get what it wants and it not budging. But I see the language such as we will not move... So the secret thing, we will not move on to trade talks until everything else is settled and it's... You know, until sufficient progress is made mm-hmm. and now it feels like well they're sort of trying to fudge everything to make it seem like sufficient progress is made so I, although they I mean, well they can be helpful I mean they yeah. are they are they so I hate speaking with that it's all fair um, the European Union the Commission particularly and, 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 and within the Commission the, the Council so the heads of states they are you know, the world's foremost negotiators and politicians and they have that um, diplomacy Aspect which allows you to position things. So actually, a lot of the stuff in the around the issues yesterday in the Northern Ireland deal was was precisely about very very subtle wording. Mm. The EU is very happy to give ground on how the UK can present it. So actually, one of the things that came out of when we when the financial settlement news broke um, is actually there is clearly a if not a detailed but a, a headline formula. Essentially, we agree to pay you know, debts, current liabilities, yada yada yada. Um, the UK needs to be able to spin a more positive story than we've caved in and we're giving the EU everything they asked for. Mm. The EU is perfectly happy to help that process and help the UK and write a narrative is this not that helps the UK to spin it in its direction. This, this is, is what you talked this about. This is basically what I said a few weeks ago. Is yeah. that we would end up capitulating, but they would allow us to give the impression that we hadn't. Now, and I think that's basically what's, what's starting to happen. Yeah, I think a wonderful example of that was Michel Barnier saying... <laughs> Theresa May is a very, t- a very tough negotiator, <laughs> which, which you know, I quite like. I mean, maybe she is, maybe she isn't, but it's but it's just helpful her, rhetoric. It's yeah. Help, yeah, because no one wants to just face any of this because actually, mm-hmm. you know, future relationships have got to carry on and all that kind of stuff. So, so in those kind of ways, they're helping. So they said, you know, actually, you've got a hundred billion pound gross. It's going to wash out at fifty billion ish. There is not going to be one bill. You pay your current liabilities as they're due to fall. The future liabilities you will pay as they're due to fall. This can be accrued out over 50 years. Maybe you'll notice the numbers. You can go back to your parliament and say, you know, in the national accounts, all this is a washout. Nobody really sees it. Didn't we strike a great deal? And the EU's cool with that. It doesn't care. What it wanted was a commitment to pay the cash. As long as it's got that, it's happy to weave the narrative however you want it weaving. Right, so... We don't have any agreement on the first round of talks. We're recording this probably when you've already found out why this will be, but it might be a good idea for one of you to yeah. explain why there is no deal, in particular in regards to Northern Ireland. I'll give it a go. Go on, Alex. So, there was an election called in which the Conservatives wanted to secure a mandate for Brexit, essentially. And it didn't go to plan, and the Conservatives ended up being propped by the DUP. Mm -hmm. And this has thrown an almighty spanner in the works, um, and has basically given Theresa May another problem to deal with. Um, And so, we went into, she went into the talks with Jean-Claude Juncker, and essentially what we were proposing was that, (laughs) I need to make sure I get this right, Um, 
was that there would be no regulatory divergence between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. That, 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 that was to, main, to, to essentially so that the border would not be moved into the sea. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there are, there are a few state bo- stakeholders here. Uh, so from, first of all, the Republic of Ireland's point of view and, the nor- and nor- uh, Northern Ireland's point of view, that, that there is a... I mean, everybody wants to avoid a hard border. And so in order to do that, there has to be a regulatory equivalence between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Um, so from the Republic of Ireland's point of view, they have to be aligned entirely with Northern Ireland. That's, this is a that's, Good Friday Agreement. Yes, yeah. that's what allows there f- for there to be no hard border. But from Northern Ireland's point of view and the DUP's point of view, they want to be fully aligned with the rest of Britain. Mm-hmm. Those three things are completely incompatible and have put Theresa May in a position where, from where I can tell, whichever direction she steps in, she's in big trouble. Uh, The reason being that if she agrees that there will be some divergence between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, that brings up the problem of a hard border. If she agrees with what the DUP wants, that if uh, there is no regulatory divergence between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, uh, she has to do that to avoid a border in the sea, which is what the DUP do not want, and also what the EU does not want. Mm-hmm. But in order for that to happen, it also means that the rest of Britain cannot diverge from the rest of the EU. And if she goes down that route, many people in her party are going to call for her head. Yes. So she's basically, she's got to enforce a hard border in Ireland, she's got to lose the support of the DUP, and so throw the Conservatives under the bus, or she's going to get thrown under the bus by the rest of her party. Yeah. So, so, well done. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's very well done. So yeah. the countries A, B, C and D, what you could say is, A needs an open border with B, B needs an open border with D, A needs an open border with C, but C must have a closed border with D. That's that's probably it. I've not quite followed all that. (laughs) But that's it. And this comes back to what we were saying earlier. The problem is, is we've always known this was going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, So actually, the UK leaving the EU does not necessarily set up hard borders between the UK and the rest of the EU, and therefore Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland. What you have got is you've got a huge wing of the Tory party, led particularly by, by Boris Johnson et al., who wants to be able to deregulate. They want to be able to move the UK's regulations away from, from EU. Which, which, OK, so that's an interesting one. I know we can't touch on, on, on this before, but as a chamber, you must kind of be sympathetic to that in, in some respects. It's, it's a hard call. Every, you know, the, you know, economics, I think, actually everyone who teaches economics says that economics has this very simple point at the heart of it, and there's usually four different points of any who you talk to. But <laughs> one of the core things is there are always trade-offs. There's yeah. no such thing as a free lunch. Um, rule number one in policy and economics. Um, so, actually, some of our members, certainly, would like us to be able to walk away from some EU regs, because they say them as a bit onerous, it's seems strenuous. That, that company doesn't particularly trade with the EU, import or export, so it doesn't get the benefits of the regulatory alignment where it's, it could see benefits from regulatory divergence. Other members will tell you um, attaching yourselves closely into a single market like the EU is an excellent way of doing business and growing markets and opening customers. So what, is, what will be true for company A will not necessarily be true for company B. So on the whole, we have to try and strike a balance yeah. where things go. So on balance, you can make an argument that membership of the, of the single market is better than not. You could make an argument that actually the UK's opportunities to grow its export and international trade markets 
around the world have been hampered by making trade with the EU so insanely easy that that's where companies have focused their efforts. Yeah. Actually, we could do more. All of these individual things are, if not partially true, then ho- if not wholly true, then at least partially true, and for some companies it will be. But you've got to make all those trade-offs. You've got to understand all of those. And actually, on balance, you know, the general agreement is, certainly in the short term, Alignment with the single market makes sense because, actually, that's the way supply chains are currently configured. You know, it's the big pushback for me from a sheer policy point of view. You know, I work in a public-facing policy role, so I have, I have no opinion uh, on whether we should stay or leave. Um, you could say, well, actually, business has moved and has relocated its supply chains on the basis of us being in the single market. Therefore, it's important that we maintain those links. So people will say... You don't need to be in the single market because America isn't, and America trades perfectly well. Yes. Yes. It's not about being in or being out. The point is we're currently in, and have been for a while, and lots of the way business works has moved to accommodate that stuff. So European supply chains would not look the way they do today if we had never joined. But we have. So it's a bit of that pragmatism I spoke of earlier where people kind of haven't changed their minds. The point is the regulatory system changed in a big way in 1992, uh, post-Maastricht, 1993, business has set itself up like that. If you just pull the plug, you cause all sorts of problems. Uh, and it's probably worth, at this point, just sparing a thought for Theresa May, because, not, uh, by the way, that's probably the least popular uh, comment which I've made all podcast. But as you mentioned before, she is stuck between the EU, with all their diplomatic skills and their you know, political savvy, but on the other hand, the DUP. And if you want to find a set of politicians that know how know how to do politics, just visit Northern Ireland. Absolutely. I mean, a few people have pointed out the the, the irony in um, in Arlene Phillips' name, uh, uh, Arlene, Arlene Foster. Foster. Arlene Foster, yeah. um, who said, "You know, we will absolutely not stand for any regulatory divergence between the Northern Ireland and Great Britain." Well, clearly, apart from on gay marriage, apart from <laughs> access yeah. to abortion, apart from a whole range of social issues, apparently where that's really important. So it's, you know, I'd you know, take your views on each of those topics individually. I just love pointing out the hypocrisy of politicians. <laughs> so here's a, here's a thought. When do you think this statement or when do you think the language will be sorted out to the satisfaction of the DUP? Because I suspect it's going to be any day. I think it'll be quick, uh, and I'd be surprised if it's not done this week, and probably tomorrow. There's a big meeting tomorrow. I would maybe point something out here, which I think is that what the disagreement has been about is not about the future arrangement. It's about changing what the default is. Yes. So so the line which was apparently in, was in the agreement was that... Uh, if there was no agreement, we would not support uh, any arrangement or lack of arrangement which threatened uh, the Irish Union or threatened the possibility of a hard border. Yep. So this was an attempt not to work out exactly what the future arrangement is with regards to Ireland. It's to make sure that there isn't a hard border. Yeah, it's a change of the default. No, it's, it's absolutely right. Actually, it's important in the, in the statement which uh, which wasn't agreed yesterday. Um, the, the really important bit actually is the first few words, and that statement opens by saying, "In the event of no deal, yeah, the UK will ensure that there is no regulatory oh, divergence." Right. I was not aware of that um, because essentially, it's because the U- I mean, I, I still think this is a this is a can which we have kicked down the road, and we will still trip over mm. later on. But the UK government's position in all this has always been: we agreed, we capitulated on the phasing of the talk, so so that's done, and that's why we now have to agree all of this now. The UK's position has been: 
the discussion about whether you have a hard, an invisible border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland can only be handled at the point of discussing the trade and future relationship. The EU's position has always been, we can't, there is no guarantee we will get to that point, so what is your, what is your default plan yeah. in the event of everything else? Um, and actually, you know, in many ways, we've come, to, we've come to the point, like we said, like we always would, where the UK will have to get to the point where it says we promise we will not diverge because we can't put a border in place. Um, and the sense of the text that was, that was put down yesterday said in the event of no deal, in fact, actually, I've actually got the text in front of me, um, the UK remains committed to protecting North-South cooperation and a guarantee to avoiding a hard border. The UK's intention is to achieve these objectives through the overall EU-UK relationship. Should this not be possible, the UK will propose specific solutions to address the unique circumstances of the island of Ireland. In the absence of agreed solutions, the UK will maintain full alignment with the internal market, customs union and protection of the Good Friday Agreement. So the UK's default position is now that if we can't strike a future deal... Essentially, we retain the status quo in all aspects of regulation and customs. We just cease to be a member of the EU. Right. Um, so, sorry, now, what that, why I think this is actually still a problem is there has never been a free trade agreement in the technical WTO sense of the world, word which does anything to remove a border. Okay. So, because we know that the UK seeks a deep and special quotes relationship between the UK and the EU, you know, a special FTA. Canada Plus appears to be the kind of model that the that the UK is going for. Well, so, it's so a closer full, than Canada, further away than further away than Norway. Norway. So, so the expectation it would be, I guess, would be a full blown zero tariff on manufactured goods, with some chapters to cover services. Mm. Now that's cool, but you can have an FTA which zero tariffs all of the goods, but that doesn't take the border away. Um, and people say, "Oh, it's all about Northern Ireland. We need to, we can just stay in the customs union." It's like, well, having a customs union doesn't take the border away. You know, the the original European Community um, customs union has been in place in some form since the 1960s, uh, upgraded again through the Amsterdam Treaty of the 1980s there was a customs border. The thing which took the customs border away, the actual national border away, was the creation of the single market in 1992. It's common regulation, and not just common regulation. And at the moment, you know, the, if, if you think some of the stuff we talked about over the past few months has been geeky, the whole analyst world is now trying to wrestle the difference between <laughs> regulatory convergence and regulatory alignment. Yes. And what yeah. the difference between those oh, two things on. might be. Um, David Davis did say what, what the difference is today. He said one is... Not aligned, he said. So like one is one is synchronized, one isn't. I, I need to find the quotes. But yeah, and, and essentially, the, the idea is, is convergence is is your the two lines between the two regulatory systems join up at a point in the future, and alignment is they just run in parallel. The point is the the practical outcome of the two is the same, but the legalistic. Mm -hmm. distinction you can make is different. So this is about, again, the EU helping to spin narratives. So Ireland, Ireland agreed the text, which failed yesterday. Mm. Ireland was happy. There was a bit of a tweak around the concept of convergence and alignment, and they were happy to go. The rest will be picked up later. It's enough to move on. Apparently, the European Parliament signalled it was happy with, with citizens' rights. Yesterday, we were ready to move. The issue was the DUP essentially smelt that the UK government is proposing potentially continued alignment between Northern Ireland and the Republic of, Ar and Republic of Ireland, but allowed divergence between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. 
Yes. Which would place a border, a hard border um, between Stranraer and Belfast, essentially, or Liverpool and Holyhead. Sorry, between Holyhead and, uh, and uh, uh, Ireland that way. So there's two ways that I see this. Pro- well, one main way that I see it is pro- problematic for the, D- for the DUP, which is if the language says something along the lines of, in the event of no deal, something happens with Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, it is almost bait for those Republicans who want to agitate for a united Ireland yep. to derail Brexit. You've, you've got that issue, and I think you've got a challenge in the UK in, in your hard Brexiters. Because the point is actually if... Because what the government is now saying in all of this, and again, this is you know this was all perfectly predictable. You were going to run up against these contradictory problems. Is what you're now what the, their position now is is if we get no deal, we lock ourselves to EU regulation. Mm. Yeah, that's now the government's position. So if we fail to strike a deal to leave, we basically stay but lose our voice. Yes. That's now the default outcome. Now, that puts massively more pressure on the government to sort of deal out because the the Tory party would implode on that as a default scenario. Um, And and the thing is, uh, there's still been no solution put forward to this, which is is workable. Because, I mean, for example, we often talk about the Norway option, right? So, Mm -hmm. which means staying in the single market but coming out of the customs union and putting us in the position of Norway. Um, You know... Another solution would be something like Switzerland. But the border between EU and Norway and the EU and Switzerland, they aren't frictionless. They aren't like the border in, you know, in Ireland. There is infrastructure there. I mean, for example, in Norway, if we were to take the Norway option, we would be outside the customs union. And so you would have to deal with rules of origin, for example, uh, would have to be dealt with at the Irish border, which means that there will have to be some infrastructure there. You know, and then you can, take away, you can put customs agreements in place which will deal with that kind of thing. But then the problem becomes... Is that even if even if we go down this route of regulatory alignment, which I think is a very very vague, you know, distracting term, which now David Davis is bandying about, you still, for there still to be a frictionless border, you still have to operate the same mechanisms of enforcement of those regulations. Yeah, and that that won't happen under that scenario because you know we can say that we've enforced these regulations and they align perfectly with yours. But the EU will then have to do its own checks and have exactly. its own mechanisms in place. Someone once described this to me beautifully. He said that the difference between... Because people said, well, you can have regulatory alignment without a single market. And of course you can. There's, yes. there's abs- absolutely no question of that whatsoever. What the single market does is provide for a guarantee of future alignment. Mm-hmm. That's the point. So if, as regulations change, they are utterly enforceable and they will align. So the UK does not need to check goods coming from the U- The EU does not need to check goods coming from the UK because we have the same regulatory system and we are bound by international treaty to maintain the same regulatory system. Mm-hmm. That is the crux. As long as you say, oh, we'll maintain alignment, trust us. Yeah. Well, okay, I mean, maybe. Maybe you're going to do what says, but actually... How, how can we trust you? Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's also at what level? So it's all, you know, c- customs border checks is all a risk-based approach because nobody is ever going to check every pass and every van. And, and the, other, the other issue is we've, we've had solutions put forward by Brexiteers like Dan Hanan who have said that we can maintain regulatory alignment with the EU and that's okay, but we can diverge in terms of trade with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. But we can't because the moment that those goods have to go across the Irish border, exactly. you need infrastructure there to check them. And so, I mean, 
I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think my point is that the only way in which the border can be maintained exactly as it is today, as in there isn't one, is for us to stay in the EU. Like, yeah. I think now it's a matter of it is guaranteed that there's going to be some increased friction on the Irish border. It's just how do we make it as, as frictionless as possible? See, I exactly. actually think it's a small window into the trade deal which the UK are going to strike with the EU, which is basically... It's the same as what it is now, but without a voice. I mean, I, I can't see there being well, any... Well, and, the, and, and you know, the irony is, of course, I mean, you know, we've maintained this, you know, said this a few times from the podcast, in, in, a, in a cynical way, if you want to take that kind of view, that's the EU's perfect possible outcome. The UK follows all of its regulations, but, but has lost its veto and its say on any of those. It's, I mean, there's well, no possible... Because all of its companies, all of the EU27 companies, maintain access... Full-blown access to the UK market. So but actually, you no longer have the UK going, oh, we don't like this, we don't like this, we don't like I this. I think it's actually, not quite similar, I think it's France's best... Fra- France would love it, certainly. I mean, that, you know, without a doubt. For the EU itself, I'm not convinced that is the best. I think the best thing for the EU is for the UK to eat humble pie and come back as a full-blown member and, with, and actually, we with, know that, with voting rights. We know actually that is, that is the, use, the EU would prefer we were not going. You know, uh, you know, and they've been perfectly honest with that. Uh, they're honest with us about that. Um, um, let's just look at this from a different point of view. So when there is a deal struck, because it does, because it does seem like it's going to only be a matter of time. How good news is that for your, for your for your members? And are you finally find? Will you finally be able to go back to them and say, "Hey, look, it's start, start, starting to settle down business as usual." Um, I think it depends how quickly we move and how far we're getting into all of that. So you know, there will be. You know, we saw Sterling move. Significantly yesterday, as it looked, you know, all the news was up until about noon. We'd got it. We'd got the agreement on the first phase, mm. uh, and Sterling rallied on that, only to tank later when uh, when it all fell apart. So you'll see some confidence moves in the markets. This is assuming we get first yes. phase over with. Um, so essentially, there's two big points we hope to hit in the next week. Actually, one is hopefully later this week we get confirmation we've we've got the first phase through. And then next week, we hope we get an official statement from the European Council, which confirms that sufficient progress has been made. I mean, that's got to be a huge boost. To, that's going to be that, that's a huge boost because that sets confidence that we are actually we're at least moving forward. The, the, the possibility of no deal recedes. It doesn't go to zero because it does get you know underlying all of this is nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Yeah. So the phase, the three aspects of phase one will fall, can still fall if. Later, if all the stuff uh, later doesn't work out, so so that'll be a boost to members in terms of things are actually actually moving. The big chal- uh, the next big hurdle is going to be transition. So the big thing our companies are wanting to know is what will the world look like at one minute past eleven on the 29th of March 2019? Does it look like it looks now? That's the big uncertainty. Now we could still be a little way away from that. Um, the the European Council a the European uh, Council, the Commission rather, is currently drawing up the next stage of negotiating guidelines because the current negotiating guidelines do not have provision for a transition agreement, transition period. Um, and the EU essentially has yet to decide whether one is in its interest or not. So that's, that's got to happen. I expect that will happen actually as part of the, the Council proceedings next week. Um, we've then got to get the agreement on that. That really for us is, is what the members need as the next stage. 
yeah. what does 2019 look like? Because we talked in, in a few podcasts ago, we've got lots of companies with plans ready to go, and if we don't have clarity on what 2019 looks like fast, I mean really fast, we've got eight weeks at the outside, um, then those plans will start to will start to happen. Yeah, they'll start, start to be triggered. Yeah. yeah. I might add, though, that I think... There, there is a significant possibility that this will increase political instability. Um, mm. in, 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 I'm in glad the, you mentioned that. In the near future. I mean, uh, we've already mentioned before the, 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 the problems that Theresa May is going to have in sorting this out. It's, it seems like whichever way she goes, she's going to... So, it, it, it feels to me like Theresa May, May might not have long. No, no, and, I mean, and, she's and she, utterly of her own making. Yes, yeah, and, um, but the other aspect um, of it that we saw today is that there's, it, it feels like there's been a significant change in Labour's position. So yes, Keir, Keir, Keir Starmer was granted, what's the term I'm looking for, an emergency question. Yep. You know, yeah, urgent yeah, question. Urgent yep. question. Um, and said that we have to keep membership of the single market and the customs union on the negotiating, ta- on the negotiating table because of this Irish problem, which it doesn't seem like a big grand statement from Labour that we're now the soft Brexit party, but... If they're asking for that to be kept on the table, and everybody knows that that is the only possible solution to you know everything, all the all the red lines that the government has set, it feels to me like this was perhaps the the changing point for Labour. But it also ties in with what Leave said anyway, which is we can stay in the single market, the customs union anyway. Don't worry about it, and we'll leave the EU. And yeah, and the, which is was, so, you know, it's been our position that if you're going to leave, that's the way you need to do it. Uh, a bit of a clarification: we can't stay in the customs union. We leave the customs union when we leave. We would need to strike a new UK-EU customs union that's basically ideal to the EU one. That I don't think there's any question from either and, side that the EU would agree and, to and, that. And another fascinating element to this is that the DUP were pro-Brexit. And, you know, I don't know if they're regretting that decision now, but, I, you know, everybody says that the only thing the DUP fears more than Brexit not happening is a Jeremy Corbyn-led government. Well, let's not get into that. And <laughs> well, but I think the, these are the political tensions yeah. now, yeah. Well, um, because you have all of these things which aren't squareable. The Labour move is, is I think, it's really big news. Yeah. Um, uh, and also because, actually, they don't need to, despite the, this, I mean, this is a huge U-turn. And people say, because some people I talk to will say, oh, look, Labour have always been pro-Europe and pro-Remain pro, um, and soft Brexit. It's like, well, again, let's cast our minds back. Um, Jeremy Corbyn three-line whipped his party um, to vote for, article, to trigger Article 50. He three-line whipped his party to vote for a motion that the UK leaves the, Europe, leaves the single market mm-hmm. and the customs union and sacked three of his front bench ministers for defying that three-line whip. So Labour's position has never, ever been soft Brexit or pro-Remain. It is, there is no statement of truth anywhere in that. So this is a big shift. Now what we've got is, is this has Keir Starmer been leading the party negotiations over the past few days and shifted their position? Or is this Keir Starmer being really ballsy and just shifting the Labour Party line and he now needs to go back to Labour Party HQ and square all yeah. of that? I think it's the it's latter. And the reason I think that is... It feels that as the Conservatives are putting all their political capital into Brexit, Labour are going around talking about anything but Brexit. Because they actually don't need to do anything in many ways. But of course they don't need to be pro-Remain. They don't need to be pro-single market retention. All they need to be is one step softer than the Tories. Mm. And not talk about it. Yeah. All you need to do is line that out and they may find that as as I said, the, the Northern Ireland issue... I mean, I don't even believe the words that were agreed yesterday didn't solve the problem. They, they managed the negotiation and diplomatic issue to allow you to move through. 
But I said the point is there is no free trade agreement we can do with the EU over the next two or five years which takes the border away. Yeah. So, you, so actually you would still end up with the default position being we've got a free trade agreement but actually we're in the customs union but we haven't, we've only got a promise of regulatory alignment therefore there will be some, it might be sporadic, it might only be one in a thousand trucks but there will be some form of border. So I do wonder actually if, because I spoke about political instability whether once Theresa May strikes a deal for the first part of Brexit she actually becomes a bit more popular as people start to believe that there is a plan being laid out. Well, regardless of what plan that is, because I don't think people walk around thinking I'm a hard, bre- I'm a hard Brexiteer or I'm a soft Brexiteer. They just want to see a plan. Well, and maybe would, that engages Labour more. I, well, I, would, I would put a counter view to that. Um, I would say if we get this over the line uh, and the first three bits are agreed and we get an agreement to a transition from the council and we move into full-blown trade agreement, trade discussions in January... I say the question now is, why do you need Theresa May anymore? Ooh, that's interesting. So if I was Theresa May, this is just pure speculation here. If I was Theresa May, I think I would have gone down the route of sacking David Davis. Not because I personally think he's doing a good job, because I think you could make, make the excuse that you could say, hey, look, we've given it to the Brexiteers, they've got us so far, but quite frankly, I'm not seeing enough pro, 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 progress. Fire um, him, get get it over the line, and then take credit for what will happen next. There was a great Twitter thread yesterday by somebody whose name I can't remember, who essentially said that, but actually even more, and said, actually, you know what, we were on the cusp of the deal. We are on the cusp of getting the first stage through. Do you know what, what she could have done is just gone back to the DUP and said, actually, screw you. Um, if you bring this down, you impose a hard border on Northern Ireland. I will make it perfectly clear to the entire public of Northern Ireland that it is you and your party's decisions that brought this. You've got no assembly. You have to forget the DUP has no yeah, con- <laughs> the DUP has no constitutional role in Northern Ireland. It is just a party like any other. It isn't the lead. It isn't the government. There isn't, isn't any of that. Actually, and also, if you bring, a, if you want to throw a hissy fit about this, you lose your one and a half billion quid, we've promised you, as part of the confidence and supply uh, agreement. You throw up the hard border, you force a new election in which Jeremy Corbyn is almost guaranteed um, to be... The to be yeah, to, uh, certainly to be the biggest... Corbyn will be Prime Minister, almost certainly. Um, because I think because what you've got is the, the ability for Labour to shift its position. If there were a general election tomorrow, Labour would be soft Brexit. Yes. Because, because frankly they'd be insane to take anything else but, because because yeah. they would they would scoop the middle ground and that also that means abandoning but, all of their things but like go further like yeah but he said go further than that do all of that stuff in Northern Ireland tell the DUP to go and screw themselves uh, and just walk away the next Tory the next hard Brexiteer in cabinet be that Johnson or Davies who steps one thing to go into line you fire them instantaneously you tell them by you fire them by press release and just, just cut everyone off the knees. Because actually, government's totally unstable. It's on the cusp of collapsing every day. What is there to lose? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no political capital left. You, know you may as well burn every bloody bridge on the way out. I but w- get the deal. Go down as the Prime Minister who actually got the damn deal through. I, I feel, I feel after you've said that, I feel that I'll, I'll have made, made something of my life when, once I'm fired by press release. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's, 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 when you find out from the papers. Where <laughs> yeah, is it? That is now one of my life goals. Um, but no, so going back to your first part, I, said, I think Theresa May is probably more vulnerable because at the moment you, you don't get rid of her at the point where we're trying to where we're at this delicate point but actually once we're through all of that you know and some of the comments from the the EU leaders this in the last sort of 24 hours or so have said 
this problem is that because apparently the, D, the text was not cleared with the DUP. That's mm. the fundamental sort of issue in all this. Is he who said the problem is you come along and promise. The Prime Minister promises, um, uh, David Davis promises, but have you got the political capital to honour the promise? Mm-hmm. So Very we can agree on this table, but all this needs ratification. Whatever we agree to has to be passed by your parliament and has to be passed by our parliament. It's not like they get any help from the Labour Party either. So um, No, because the, the Labour Party would, you know, of course in their best interests move to, to squall of that. And people say, oh, but this stuff, you know, it's just a done deal when you're ratifying all this stuff. Don't forget, CETA was very nearly pulled two weeks ago. It, Angela Merkel was prepared to, walk, to kill CETA to get a coalition. Because the coalition partners said they wanted out of CETA, and Angela Merkel was prepared to do it. Now, those coalition talks broke down as it happened. But all this idea that CETA's a done deal, CETA's not gone through national parliaments yet. Well, do you know what the um, analogy that I thought of was the Walloonian parliament holding up yeah, CETA? Absolutely. It's almost an identical if, situation. If, don't forget, if, our, if the deal between the UK and the EU is a mixed, what we call a mixed agreement, so it's got competences that aren't only EU but also member state, then we will have to go through all of that process. So just because, you know, this is, this is why we talked about how complex all of this is, we can get to a point where the European Commission has done its QM, its qualified majority vote, and agreed the deal. The UK government, and even the UK Parliament, has agreed the deal, and the European Parliament has signed it all off. You, it can still fall after that. Mm. And it can fall because the Bulgarian Parliament didn't want it to happen. Yes. That's, it, or, you know, it's, this stuff is not a done deal very easily. International politics, it's the big thing that came out yesterday, international politics is still a very, very dirty, messy game. Well, do you know what is a done deal? This podcast. Today's podcast. Unless, <laughs> unless you guys have got anything else to add. Uh, to, to be honest, this could go for, you know, I mean, I suspect yeah. in next week's we'll be talking more about this. And hopefully with the... I hope the, so. Hopefully <laughs> with, a, uh, with an agreement in place for the first phase. But this is, yeah, we're into... After what feels like eighteen months or nearly two years, that I've yeah. preamble, Progress. we're at the point. It's the first time since something really happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, what is going on in uh, the chamber of the year uh, over the over the festive period? Over, over the festive period, we're shut. Uh, which, is, <laughs> 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 which is yeah, we close between Christmas and New Year, uh, but we've got two weeks. Well, I've got two weeks, just under two weeks left. The the chamber's got three. What's going on? We've got we've got a big meeting of our campaigns committee tomorrow, actually, yeah. which sounds quite dull, but it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got two big campaigns on the go around employee of the future and infrastructure connectivity. So we're we're doing some work on that. We've got yeah. a quarterly economic breakfast next Friday. Quarterly economic breakfast on uh, on the fifteenth, where we present the latest uh, quarter four data and uh, see where the world's going. Week after that, we're all going for Christmas lunch. We are big Christmas Very party. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got uh, meet the commercial team up in up in Oldham, where we're inviting all of our commercial clients, and we're also having De- Debbie Abrahams and Jim Jim at Mon show. So oh, very good. So yeah, two Oldham MPs. Yeah. So that should be good. They're, good they're both very very good value. Yeah. Excellent. Right, gents. I, sh- I shall see you ne- see you see you next week. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.